You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. When we're talking about whether or not victims are going to continue to pay, I think that on net, they're absolutely going to continue to pay. And it's a little counterintuitive, right? Because it seems like people are going to want to follow rules, and generally they may. But the problem is that as a policy lever, bans really are only going to work well when the penalty outweighs the benefits of whatever behavior you're trying to prevent. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben discusses the expansion of the so-called Glomar response. I look at Google's email scanning policies. And later in the show, James Gimby, director at technical advisory firm Mox5, on why he believes banning ransomware payments is bad policy. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-year-plus partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. All right, Ben, let's uh, kick things off here. We've got a little quick follow-up here from a listener. This came to us uh, via Twitter, and this is from us, at Brent D. Stewart. He wrote us and said, uh, following CDA Section 230 discussion on caveat, providers like Facebook don't just show friends updates in historical order. They intermix content like Republican or Democrat fringe posts to enhance stickiness. If they are exercising editorial control, does that still qualify for immunity? Ben, what do you think? Great question. Uh, Goes into the heart of the Section 230 debate. Generally, Section 230 covers the activities of companies like Facebook, whether they are simply the facilitator of posts or whether they're exercising some sort of editorial control the way they are in the circumstances this person is describing. Hmm. What's really interesting about this is Mark Zuckerberg went in front of Congress earlier this year and suggested that Section 230 be reformed so that it doesn't apply to Facebook or any other company's algorithms. Hmm. So the idea being that Facebook is exercising some form of editorial control just by having the algorithm. They're moving posts around. They're illuminating posts that are particularly controversial. That might spark some sort of reaction. So that's an exercise of editorial control. And therefore, in his view, you know, Facebook should be held liable in Hmm. those circumstances. Is that like, uh, you know, Br'er Rabbit saying, don't throw me in the briar patch? That's exactly what it is. Um, (laughs) I mean, he knew that the political pressure was coming. He knew that Facebook was in the ringer from all sides of the political spectrum about Section 230 with, you know, people on the political right saying that it's— 
you know, it's not fair that Facebook censors conservative voices. They should be held liable. And people on the left saying they're fostering dis, you know, disinformation about vaccines. They're, you know, inspiring insurrections against our government. They mm. need to be held accountable. Zuckerberg, knowing that, went in and said, all right, I have a solution that, you know, is an interesting half step. We'll preserve our liability for everything else. But as it relates to algorithms, you know, sure, why not? You know, and I think <laughs> okay. a couple of lawmakers <laughs> saw right through that. Um, the ones that are proposing some of the more uh, significant 230 proposals are saying, let's not be reeled in by Zuckerberg here. I, I think what he's trying to do is satisfy the need for some sort of reform while only carving out a narrow exception to Section th- uh, 230. Mm-hmm. So applying to algorithms would be would be great. Opening up liability um, for the use of algorithms would probably be a step in the right direction. But Facebook makes a lot of other editorial decisions. Um, and depending on the contours of the proposal, I'm not sure that those would be covered. Hmm. So to answer your question, generally, right now, they are immune from suit under Section 230. Um, but we'll see what happens once... Congress gets its hands uh, on some reform proposals. All right. Well, thank you to our kind listener for sending in that thoughtful question. Of course, we would love to hear from you. You can email us. It's caveat at thecyberwire.com. All right, Ben, let's jump into some stories. Uh, Why don't you start things off for us? So mine comes from the Lawfare blog, frequent source of ours, from Mm. Christina Koningheiser, uh, and it's about uh, secrecy creep. So I'm sure you've heard of the so-called Glomar response. Mm. You send a FOIA request to the CIA, the FBI, any three-letter agency saying, I want information on X, and they don't want to tell you information on X. They will send you a very curt reply saying, we can neither confirm nor deny the existence of X. Mm. After a minute, I wasn't too familiar with the origin story of the Glomar uh, response. Mm. comes from the late 1960s when the CIA discovered a sunken Soviet ship, and the CIA and the rest of our government apparatus built a separate ship outfitted with a giant claw. And I'm totally serious about this. <laughs> as, as you do. I'm picturing the ones at the arcade to grab the, the stuffed animals. Yeah. You just move the little joystick and, and press the button. And it, I don't know why the image of, of Dr. Doofenshmirtz just came in my, my mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, you, you press the button and the, the right. Soviet ship comes up and you got some valuable intelligence. Yeah. So obviously this... Uh, you know, led to the CIA coming up with some sort of cover story saying that he had built and they convinced Howard Hughes, a eccentric billionaire at the time, to claim he built the ship to mine valuables from the seafloor. Ah, and okay. so they named the vessel the Glomar Explorer, um, which was, of course, a uh, misdirection. So that became the preferred nomenclature for this co- so-called Glomar response. You see it all the time when we're talking about Uh, federal agencies. Hmm. What's happened now is the Glomar response is filtering down to state and local law enforcement agencies. And according to this author, and I completely agree with it, that's particularly problematic. Hmm. The reason it's used at the national level is because we're talking about national security. You know, there are constitutional provisions, particularly Article 2, saying that the president of the United States is the commander-in-chief protecting the country from enemies, foreign and domestic. You know, there is a national security role for the government that would more justify this type of secretive response. Mm -hmm. The other difference with the federal government is that we have inspectors general inside these agencies who can do reports, uh, you know, providing oversight on Mm -hmm. how these programs are working. Mm -hmm. And Congress meets for the whole year. They have oversight committees. 
they can make sure that, or at least in theory, that these agencies aren't abusing their authority. Right. None of that really exists at the state level. Uh Um, So you don't have those strong inspector general departments. And frankly, you know, state legislatures are a little bit weaker. I know here in Maryland, they only meet for three months. Mm -hmm. Um, That's true in in other states as well. So you don't have that same type of, of oversight. But all of these state and local law enforcement agencies, particularly, and this is why it's relevant to us, when they're asked about the use of modern surveillance technology, they are giving the GLOMAR response. So what, are the, what does that mean? What are they, what's the typical response? Uh, we can neither confirm nor deny the existence or the use of that piece of technology. And how is that the get-out-of-jail-free card for, you know, a, a, like a um, freedom of information request? At the state level? Well, I mean, it depends on the state. Sometimes it might not legally be the impediment to collecting that information. Sometimes, um, you know, the state will have a statutorily protected interest in the information. But at the very least, it ties it up in litigation. Mm. Uh, so litigation takes a long time. That might de- the delay the oversight and discovery of such a surveillance program, you know, beyond the point where it would be useful to the public. Mm. Uh, so that's one particular concern. Mm. You know, also, it's going to be much harder to file a lawsuit. The only lawsuits we've seen that have been successful against mass surveillance practices have been where people are able to establish standing. Mm. And to establish standing, you have to prove with some impending certainty that you yourself were the victim of some type of modern surveillance tool. You know, the federal government, in if there's a firestorm of, of controversy about something, sometimes will admit that they use a certain surveillance technology And that might enable a plaintiff to establish standing. You know, at the state level, if state agencies are constantly using this Glomar response, that can prevent people from being able to properly allege in court that they're the victim of these surveillance practices. And so that could have, um, I know this is an overused term, but a chilling effect on constitutionally protected rights. Hmm. You know, if you don't know what surveillance tools your own state and local government are using, that might make you less likely to say, show up to a protest. They're using artificial intelligence, facial recognition technology, license plate readers, and all you're getting when, you know, the media is going to these local agencies is can neither confirm nor deny. You might think twice uh, about your own First Amendment protected activity. Hmm. And the other element of this is, you know, at the national level, we have news agencies, the New York Times, Washington Post, They will dig into these things. If they discover an illicit surveillance method, you'll get some articles. You and I will probably talk about them. (laughs) Right. If it happens in Bumble, you know what, Pennsylvania. Right. You and I, it's probably not going to come on our radar. And it's, you know, local media has really kind of been decimated over the past half century. Yeah. So it's less likely that we're going to get accountability in in that respect. Hmm. So I just thought it was a really interesting exploration of how Glomar, which started in the national security context— at the federal level, uh, is now filtering down to these state and local agencies. How do we push back on this? Is this, I mean, do you, is this the kind of thing where you call your local legislator and say, hey, I'm not okay with this? Yeah, I'm actually much more optimistic about calling one's local legislators. I really do think they listen to their constituents. Mm-hmm. First of all, they generally have fewer constituents um, than a federal representative. Right. And it's just easier to get laws passed at the state level. You yeah. don't have to go through, you know, Generally, these legislatures aren't as polarized. You don't have to go through the ringer of our um, Congress critters where there's a filibuster and a bunch of these other veto points. Legislators are less controlled with an iron fist by 
leadership, like the Speaker of the House or the President of the Senate. Mm. So you are able to actually get things done. And I think the most effective thing here is to go to a state legislature um, and say, you can stop these types of Glomar responses by statute passing something that says the government has to divulge this information uh, if it receives the equivalent of a FOIA request. Hmm. And we've seen laws like that passed in different jurisdictions across the country. I know New York City has done that in a couple of circumstances. So it, it can be done. Um, and this is something where I, I do think contacting your legislator might actually make a big difference. All right. Well, we will have a link to that story in the show notes. Uh, my story this week comes from Forbes. This is written by Thomas Brewster, uh, and it's titled Google Scans Gmail and Drive for Cartoons of Child Sexual Abuse. Um, child Sexual Abuse Materials, CSAM is the uh, shortened version of that, has certainly been in the news a lot, I think most recently because of uh, the controversy surrounding Apple's plans to search for it. Of course, Apple has dialed down those plans. Um, in response to our podcast, I'm sure. <laughs> yes, and only our podcast, mm-hmm. yes. Uh, but um, this article has to do with uh, the degree to which Google scans both their email service, Gmail, and their Google Drive service for this sort of material. It's not surprising to anyone that they scan for this sort of thing. What this article points out that I think is Interesting is that uh, they're scanning for not just photographs, not just videos, but um, artistic depictions of cartoons, cartoons of these sorts of things. And of course, you know, let's just say at the outset that, of course, all it's hard to imagine anything more horrific than child sexual abuse material. Right. Right. We can all I think that's something that everyone can agree on. What's interesting here is that uh, someone's account got flagged for potentially having these sorts of images. This article describes it as digital art or cartoons depicting children engaged in sexually explicit conduct or engaging in sexual intercourse of underage boys. But no one got arrested. No charges have been filed because when they dug into this, uh, they discovered that this was an artist. This was a legitimate artist, someone who had won art awards, who was recognized for his art. Um, This article does not uh, reveal that person's name because they've been charged with no crime. Right. They point out that the laws against this sort of thing outlined that they have to prove that the relative images were obscene or lacked serious literary, artistic, political, or scientific value. Comes from a Supreme Court case, by the way. Okay, United States v. Miller. Okay. That's where that test comes from. So I just want to unpack this a little bit, Ben, because I remember a couple, I don't know, decades ago, this is probably in the mid to late 90s, when computer graphics were starting to come into their own. That was a world that I was involved with. And there was concern about when it came to things like child sexual abuse materials, that people were able, were starting to be able to create photorealistic images of this sort of thing, but without any children being involved, right? right? And so the question was, what's the legality of that? Um, If these laws are there to protect children, and rightfully so, from this sort of abuse, where are the lines? And and so I wanted to unpack that with you, is where does our Constitution 
come down on this? Am, am I is I want to put I don't want to say am I because that gives me the creeps. <laughs> yeah. Is someone uh, is someone allowed to think about these sorts of things? Is that legal? It is. Um, so child pornography itself, actual child pornography, is not protected under our First Amendment. That's one of the few carve outs under our First Amendment. Mm. It enjoys no First Amendment protection. You can be prosecuted for um, distributing or uh, using child pornography, obviously. Right. But anything that does have some sort of artistic value, if it doesn't involve the exploitation of actual children, then that generally is covered by our First Amendment. Hmm. I think the rationale behind this carve-out for uh, sexually explicit material of children is about the exploitation of children. And I think the thinking is, if this is art, if this is a cartoon, you're not actually exploiting children. There were no actual children used to um, you know, make these depictions. And that's true also when you have adult actors who are depicting children in the use of sexually explicit material. Mm. I don't know how satisfying an answer that's going to be because I think a lot of people would still find the distribution of those types of things morally wrong. Yeah. But I think that is the way that the law sees them. The, you know, We have a very robust First Amendment. We want to protect the free exchange of ideas. We want to have a robust marketplace of ideas. It goes too far when you're exploiting children. But in all other contexts, you know, the Supreme Court has been very deferential to anything that might be incredibly controversial but have some sort of artistic, literary, political value, especially judged against, um, you know, contemporaneous values. Mm -hmm. Um, So if it's something that's not so far out of the realm, uh, and they use a community standard, if it's something that the average person in in your community uh, would not find, you know— completely explicit, you know, beyond the line, something mm-hmm. that should be restricted. Mm-hmm. These things are are generally protected. I understand why Google is is trying to go after this because I think um, these images, no matter what the law says, can still be exploitative, can still be damaging to children. Right. Um, so just because the law is the way it is, that does we're not casting, you know, a normative view on, on um, that particular legal doctrine. Yeah. This article also points out that Google uh, releases a transparency report every year, and um, it says in the first six months of 2021, uh, they found more than 3.4 million pieces of potentially illegal content uh, in 410,000 reports that they passed on to, um, I believe these all go to the uh, Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Um, and that was up from 3.9 million in 365,000 reports in the previous six months and double that from uh, the six months before that. So I've the- heard a theory on this, by the way. Okay. Which is, and this is actually, I just had a student write about this in a paper. Yeah. Um, but it has to do with the pandemic. More people are home um, and not only have more time to unfortunately create images like this, but have more time to view them and, and distribute them. Hmm. Um, Interesting. Which is a disturbing theory, but one I've certainly seen in, in some literature and, and scholarship. Yeah, yeah. So I, 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 it's funny because it's hard to know, um, is Google placing their users under more scrutiny? Uh, are there simply more things to be found? Hard to know. Yeah, I mean, I would guess it, it's really the latter. You know, Google along with all the rest of these companies, most of them have reporting requirements to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Right. Um, you know, they are looking for these so-called hash values mm-hmm. where you have an image that's been tagged as depicting child pornography. 
Um, so they have a pretty robust system to get that reported. Yeah. Um, so I, I really do think it's unfortunately a, a demand problem rather than, you know, Google going uh, above and beyond to try and secure that information. Yeah. And I, I guess the the take home here, part of it is that um, everyone needs to be aware that uh, when you're using these services, any of these services, not just Google, any of these online storage services, be it email or uh, any of these file storage services, that your files are being scanned for this sort of thing. It, that That is a routine thing that's done these days. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that's obviously for a very legitimate law enforcement purpose. But yeah, people should be aware of that. Um, it's something that these companies can do, and it's something that they do do. Uh, and, you know, whether it invades our privacy or not, you know, beyond our, our expectations, it's certainly a reasonable question. But you can't argue with the government's interest through this nonprofit, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, or the company's interest in keeping this type of material off of its, you know, networks. Right, right. All right. Well, again, the article is written by Thomas Brewster. That's over on Forbes, and we will have a link to that in our show notes. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero-trust-ai. Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with James Gimby. He is a director at the technical advisory firm Mox5. And uh, our conversation centers on his belief that banning ransomware payments is bad policy. Here's my conversation with James Gimby. Obviously, the government has found itself in a situation, especially post-colonial pipeline, where they realize they may need to be playing a bigger role in cybersecurity generally and also in ransomware. And so policymakers are looking for opportunities to, to step in and make some sort of positive impact. And policymakers tend to use analogous ideas when they're setting a policy in an archaic domain, which, which makes sense, right? You try to use what you understand to address what you may not understand as well. So they'll say, well, this sounds like negotiating with terrorists, which we don't do in the physical world, or at least try not to. Uh, so we won't do it here. Or they'll say, like in the case of the, uh, the governor of Missouri uh, a few weeks back, they want to think of it like breaking into a house or breaking into a vault. It's a crime if you try to jiggle my door handle, so why isn't it a crime to look at my source code or whatever? Mm. I think that the fundamental problem is that there's really not a workable metaphor for cybersecurity, right? So there's not a familiar way, uh, something that makes sense to most people, to express this brand new defense discipline that every firm, every government, every organization has to find a way to, if not perfect, at least be proficient at. And those defenses are going to be subject to attacks from anywhere on the planet, 
at any time at scale with virtually no cost and really no realistic chance of being caught. So it's a brand new thing and it's going to require a different approach from, from policymakers. You know, the, the things that we see being floated out here are, are really, as um, I believe you've pointed out, you know, there are two major elements here. The victims will stop paying and threat actors will stop ransom operations if they can't get any money. Um, but you've pointed out that there's that this is basically flawed thinking at its root? I think so, yeah. So, you know, to, to quickly restate those assumptions, the idea that first of all, uh, bans are going to cause victims to stop paying. And then secondly, that they will force, if the victims stop paying, threat actors are going to peel back the effort. First, when we're talking about whether or not victims are going to continue to pay, I think that on net, they're absolutely going to continue to pay. And it's a little counterintuitive, right? Because uh, it, it seems like uh, people are going to want to follow rules and generally they may. But the problem is that as a policy lever, bans really are only going to work well, when the penalty outweighs the benefits of whatever, of whatever behavior you're trying to prevent. So as a result of a ban, I expect that a number of well-resourced and well-advised firms who may have otherwise paid may decide not to. But the first problem is that that's a pretty significant sample bias, right? There's an awful lot of firms who aren't that well-resourced and who aren't going to have that kind of advisement. And uh, the, the second piece is, of course, the second order effects coming out of this. To me, it seems that a ban is going to be likely to um, mean more pain for the less well-resourced employers hmm. or more pain for more victims or perhaps a more serious and more sophisticated threat. Uh, meanwhile, the bad guys are still making very, very easy money. Yeah, it's, a, it's a really interesting point. You know, I, I'm reminded of, um, I, I heard a story of a, a town near me that has uh, some public swimming pools and uh, they decided that at the end of the summer, it was easier for them to you know, drain their pools into the the uh, local sewer system and pay the fine rather than do it the correct way, which ultimately would cost them more money. And I think, you know, I, I, here I'm, I'm doing exactly what you said we shouldn't do, which is use metaphors, but that's what that reminded me of. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's, we've all seen that become part of a calculus. And the, the funny thing is it can affect the calculus for other actors as well. So, you know, I've talked before about uh, the way that these bands can influence incentives for every player in the space, the, the threat actor, the victim, but also law enforcement. Uh, so, you know, one of the things that I'm concerned about is the impact to prosecutorial incentives, where if the penalty is going to be significant enough to seriously impact how a firm is going to decide whether or not to uh, pay a ransom to bring their entire business back online, then it's also going to be significant enough to get the attention of prosecutors. Uh, and government attention is, of course, a very limited resource. So there's this thought that perhaps prosecutors will divert attention away from perhaps more constructive avenues to pursue. And, um, you know, I, I would hope this wouldn't happen. But, of course, I'm worried about the potential for harassing victims as well. Yeah. So what options do we have then? I mean, do, do you have uh, other ideas for what may lead to some success when fighting ransomware? I do. I think there's a lot of opportunity there. So... The good news is there's been a lot of thinking by a lot of smart people in the space. So while there's not a consensus on whether or not ransom payment bans are a good idea or a bad idea, there's a lot of other consensus that is available to policymakers. So, you know, we've seen, for those who might be familiar, the Institute for Security and Technology has this ransomware task force, which is composed of law enforcement and civil society, private practitioners, academia, 
And they've identified uh, quite a few dozens, in fact, policy recommendations that can be put into play. And they all push and pull on different mechanisms. Some of them, I think, are more promising than others. I think that the thing that we need the most attention on is really the diplomatic angle, where we need to try to find a way to remove the safe haven from the equation. And the reason I'm saying that is because ransomware is just so insanely profitable for these threat actors. Mm. The research I've seen have pointed to north of 95% profit margin. That's a heavy incentive. And when you're dealing with you know, basically no chance of, of being caught and no chance of physical harm, there would have to be a massive, I would say, technological change to affect those incentives without having local enforcement. Uh, so to restate, I think that the most important piece has to be getting uh, some sort of attention on the safe haven nations. You know, at the outset, we mentioned that um, part of this is the way that our system is set up in terms of our policymakers themselves, you know, and I think we always think of legislation as being sort of trailing behind the the, the advances in technology, even the advances in, in society. It, it, it tends to be reactive. Are there ways that we can do a better job from that point of view, a better job of bringing our legislators up to speed, of, having, of giving them the information they need to, to try to come at this in a more timely way? You know, I'm glad you brought that up because it's actually something I'm pretty optimistic about. Uh, so, you know, just kind of quickly giving some context from my background. Before Mox 5, I had I played a, a few different roles in consulting capacities, but I also had the opportunity to work in the Senate for a year as a policy advisor hmm. uh, through a program t- called Tech Congress. And the mission of that particular program is to do exactly what you're talking about, to try to bring expertise to policymakers. And that's one small piece of a very rapidly growing pie, uh, <laughs> uh, so to speak, of... Um, public interest technologists and folks at the intersection of public policy and technology, uh, finding ways to positively influence and make themselves available to decision makers in the executive branch and in the legislative branch and in international organizations as well. This is something where we saw such a small group of people who fit that intersection even just five, six years ago. And now we're really starting to see a, a huge, robust community with specialized programs at universities, and fellowship programs all over state and local governments. It's really something where I think a lot of positive change is happening. Is your sense that the policymakers themselves recognize that this is an area that they they need some assistance with? I think that is a growing realization. Mm. You know, in Congress, there was a little bit of resistance to it, I think, in the beginning. But the members who did take advantage of bringing on technical expertise are really starting to see that pay off and the, the quality of what they're able to um, put out in terms of uh, legislative and oversight impact. And we're starting to see demands from the legislative branch uh, to the government branch for hiring technologists for policy positions. And we're starting to see the executive branch really, again, embrace technologists as a part of the policy process more and more proactively. There's now a dedicated program at the FTC. Uh, There's a lot of uh, growing interests within the White House itself. And this is something that has spanned across multiple administrations, starting perhaps with, you know, the great work done by 18F and, and digital service. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it is an area that has uh, unusual, for these days, bipartisan support. You know, everybody wants to, to do better with this. 
That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. And that, you know, from my own experience working on the Hill, pretty much everything I touched was in some capacity a bipartisan issue. And talking with other policy advisors from the technical space in the policy world, that's not an uncommon story. Do you have any words of wisdom, any advice for folks who find themselves in the situation of being hit with ransomware? I'm thinking of, you know, just weighing their options, going through that decision process. Should we go down, should we explore paying the ransom or not? That is always going to be a very tricky business decision. Um, And unfortunately, there's not a blanket answer that I think can be confidently thrown out. Aside from to say, you need to make sure that you're getting the input required from folks who uh, are, are familiar with these processes. You don't want to be going into this sort of situation alone. We strongly advocate the use of a technical advisor. We strongly advocate for the use of uh, external breach counsel. And uh, you know these are professionals who walk through this every day as part of their, their job and uh, can really help navigate the inevitable speed bumps that come up during a breach. And then, of course, there's, to kind of get ahead of it, the prevention piece. One thing that I, I wish we could wave a wand and, and do away with is exposed RDP <laughs> to the internet. <laughs> right. You know, if we were able to get rid of that overnight, I think you'd see a, a drop off in the steep double digits of, of ransomware cases, um, at least for a little while. make of that? One thing that's interesting to me is it's really hard to develop policy right now because best practices in dealing with ransomware, it's such a live issue. Colonial Pipeline just happened, you know, nine months ago. Yeah. And we're still evaluating and formulating uh, the response to that, both at a at a government level, but also in an individual business level. Hmm. So when the government steps in and tries to enact regulations, even if right now the thinking is, you know, we don't want people to pay the ransom. And generally, there's a wide spectrum of of views on that particular issue. It's just really hard to enact that into some sort of policy because this is very dynamic. This isn't like another area of the law where, you know, I think he mentions in the interview, opening up a a doorknob is is very different. We have, you know, there's something that's very settled about trespass law related to opening a a doorknob. But Mm -hmm. this is still so new that any regulation you know, almost by its nature is is going to seem somewhat premature. So I think that's something that people who, who have lawmaking authorities always have to remember. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, again, our thanks to James Gimby for joining us. We do appreciate him taking the time. And now a word from our sponsor, Six Cents. Six Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With SixSense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals, confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose SixSense, visit SixSense.com.
our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>